Spurgeon. Welcome to my second YouTube video, this one on ESG 2.0 and energy transition, following a series of notes I wrote on Superspiked. My first video focused on ROCE deep dive, uh, and I think this will follow a similar vein. The two topics really do go hand in hand. Now, ESG is one of those topics that I think has gone completely off the rails. There's a substantive part that I think is actually bad, badly needed in the oil and gas sector. You look at Shelf 1.0, there is nothing sustainable about it. The drill, baby drill, well IRR model led to poor profits, poor investor outcomes, and a suboptimal uh, environmental situation. None of it was good. We need the sector to think in terms of full cycle economics, of being sustainably profitable, ultimately being viable in the long run, no matter what transpires for oil and gas demand. And substantive ESG, I'd argue, is actually a big part of that. I will guess it is the virtue signaling part of ESG that really turns off a lot of people. But I'll say this. Uh, I'm not really sure what the problem is for some of you, because the virtue signaling part is the part that's creating the super cycle that we're on track to happen. When people say, we don't want this pipeline or that pipeline, or this sector or that sector is unacceptable for investment, or whatever other steps are taken to limit, uh, limit traditional oil and gas supply, all those kind of things are ultimately going to be good for profitability, even if it drives you a little crazy on the sort of moralistic virtue signaling tone. The PowerPoint I'm going to go through is, is actually already too long, so I'm going to stop here in my remarks. But feedback, pushback, comments, debate, discussion, are always welcome, and thank you for watching. So, so let me start with this basic concept of ESG and what does it mean for the oil sector? I think there are some out there who say ESG is growing in prominence, uh, the oil sector is, quote, not an ESG sector, and therefore rise of ESG, bad for oil. I, I actually couldn't disagree more. Um, this idea that ESG is an asset class I would push back on. I view it as a philosophy on how to run a company. And one of the things that has been lacking from the oil and gas sector, especially over the last five years, maybe the last decade, is that many companies have not been run for sustainable profitability in all of the elements that will drive that. Substantive ESG, I think, can apply to any sector and any company in any sector. It's neither inherently good nor bad for any part of the market. It's really, how do you run your company? And I think substantive ESG is gonna be badly needed in the, in the oil and gas sector. It goes hand in hand with profitability, something that was lacking over the last five or 10 years, uh, hopefully will be a feature going forward. I think it's the virtue signaling part of ESG, uh, especially as it relates to climate, but also some of the factors that can be a turnoff for many people. I'm gonna to get to this as well. Um, I would push back on all the virtue signaling aspects of this, but I actually think that's probably going to be bullish for oil and gas prices. So even that part of it, not sure it's a big problem for the oil and gas sector. We know Shale 1.0, the 2010s, was neither profitable nor sustainable. Both shareholders lost, companies did not make money. And with that, you also got a suboptimal outcome for the environment, things like methane, uh, too high of emissions, some of those kind of things. And there are other aspects of VSG, maybe it's around diversity or governance, all of which could use improvement in the oil and gas sector. 
So here is a chart that I, I talked about this a lot in my return on capital deep dive series. It's a 30 year chart of returns on capital, the blue line uh, versus this is a real oil prices, the black line, uh, oil's on the left axis, the returns are on the right axis. And you can see two big structural cycles, 1991 to 2006, good. 2006 to 2020, the, the most recent 14 year period, bad, uh, and maybe we're turning for the better here. But let's talk about this, this downdraft that we've had, which has getting, now been 14 years in the making. Um, I would say the basic concepts of ESG were lacking and contributed to how bad this period was, especially in the last five to 10 years. The focus, very simply, and I can talk about this in some of the shale deep dives, the return on capital deep dives I've done, but this focus purely on well IRRs, drill baby drill, resulted in neither profits nor any type of sustainable approach to the shale business model. I think that's in the process of turning. Again, better ESG, better application of ESG within these companies, I think is going to be good for returns, good for shareholders. So let me just spend a second here on the oil and gas macro, um, where I, I think the, the gut reaction for many people is because of all these climate initiatives, because of all the focus on ESG, that's why we're currently having this big rally in crude oil and natural gas prices. And let me start with crude oil first and foremost. I think the overwhelming reason Brent oil is pushing uh, you know, $90 a barrel as I record this today. The overwhelming driver is a reaction from traditional investors to the extremely poor profitability we had over the last five and 10 years. Investors are saying, I want no part of this sector. And we're not talking ESG investors. We're not talking climate people. We're talking regular run-of-the-mill people who are just trying to invest their, in their, their portfolio. Really bad returns on capital has caused investors to say, don't spend money. I want the money to come back to me via dividends. There's a huge logic to it. But when we look at how tight, especially crude oil is today, diminished OPEC spare capacity, diminished above ground inventories. Yes, the CapEx response has been a little slower, but I would put the overwhelming weight on that to be a reaction to the very poor returns on capital we've had. Now, that's crude oil. If you turn to the European Union, Clearly, their energy crisis is a more complicated mix of probably ill-advised energy transition and climate policies. Probably wasn't super logical to retire a bunch of nuclear plants uh, before the next generation stuff is ready to go or to limit their own natural gas exploration development, early retirement of Groningen, what have you. It's up to Europe to decide what's best for Europe. But if one's trying to allocate blame between, let's just say, traditional cyclical reasons, not enough CapEx, that clearly applies. But there's no doubt there's been some linkage and some overlay from energy transition, ESG, and climate as it relates to the EU. But again, with crude oil, I'd push back on this is all the fault of energy transition. In fact, I think with crude oil, very little beyond some spillover perhaps from the EU. Um, and again, I know, I, I know people, especially some decent portion of my subscriber base, uh, is going to really kind of not be too excited about the virtue signaling aspect of it. But these, uh, I will say, the portion of climate and energy transition policies that we'll just call ill-advised, um, it's going to lead to tighter markets going forward. So crude oil rally to date, fundamentally driven. 
But I think as we look out over the remainder of this decade, I do think some of these block pipelines. Let's not let Canada fully and freely develop the oil. Let's put pressure on some of the shale guys. The part that comes from ESG, again, a lot of it's needed. Some of it's ill-conceived and virtue signaling. I think all of it leads to a more constructive oil and gas macro going forward. So for folks who don't like this part of it, what's the problem? You're probably going to get a bull market out of it. It doesn't have to be this way. I'm probably not going to spend as much time in this video PowerPoint on constructive steps that should be taken, but we clearly need a healthy oil and gas industry, a profitable one, not just for investors, but for the billions of people on earth, essentially everyone that still relies on available, affordable, secure crude oil and natural gas. So what is the role of oil and gas companies in this energy transition area? Here is my really crazy idea. I think oil and gas companies should actually focus on profitably producing the oil and gas that the world needs. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine these companies actually doing what they're intended to do? I know there's a lot of people say they should be investing in this low carbon technology or recognizing that climate change is an existential crisis, whatever it is. The world is still going to need a lot of oil and gas for many, many, many decades into the future. You actually want, especially Western companies, especially U.S. and Canadian companies, to be part of that mix going forward. We need a healthy North American, I'll just say Western world oil and gas industry. That is their role. We know society has benefited massively from the energy supply growth we've had. We're living longer. Our environmental outcomes are better. Cleaner air in the richer countries that happen to be the ones that also use a heck of a lot more fossil fuels. You live longer. You have uh, better lifestyles, what have you. There is a negative externality that comes from this. It's too much CO2. I don't call that pollution. I call it a negative externality. It does need to be addressed. There's no part of any of this that says we're not trying to address that. But make no mistake, we know fossil fuels have greatly benefited the world and are likely to continue to do so for quite a bit of time into the future. I think the number one climate responsibility for the oil and gas sector is to clean up methane. And I I'm not going to spend as much time on it in this video. We could go on for another 30 minutes if not longer, just on methane. I do write about it extensively. But this is, to me, clearly the responsibility of the oil and gas industry. Technology has progressed. Um, our understanding of the cost to eliminate methane has progressed. It's a solvable problem. I no longer think that individual good faith promises from some of the larger, more responsible companies is enough. I think we need an industry solution. Methane, overwhelmingly, to me, is the climate responsibility for oil and gas. I don't think doing a whole bunch of stuff that these companies don't know anything about, that have uncertain profitability metrics, that I do not think is responsibility of the sector. I'm going to get into that so-called scope three I would push back on. Methane is the issue for this sector. So I have developed an energy transition resilience framework. And uh, again, I've written about this in some of the notes. Five pillars. First, and it should surprise no one at this point, double-digit returns on capital. You have to be profitable. If you're not profitable, there is no point. It's the only point. I cite double-digit 
returns on capital is sort of the appropriate metric. I think best in class will be 15 to 20%. Some people prefer different metrics, totally fine, but it has to be something at the corporate level. It has to tie into cash flow, free cash flow, balance sheet health. You just can't make up some project economics and think that's good enough. Corporate level competitive returns. Fortress balance sheet, second point. I'm gonna spend a second on that in greater detail in a moment, but especially in a world where it's uncertain what kind of capital markets access will be there long-term, you gotta have a fortress balance sheet. I'm gonna define that shorthandedly today as not having very much debt, if any debt at all, and perhaps even having more cash and perhaps quite a bit more cash than debt to ensure you can survive and thrive in whatever the world throws at you. I think on the environmental front, net zero scope one and two is something I fully support, I most likely by 2050. Uh, I think methane, uh, eliminating methane, flaring, venting, leaks part, is part of that. Uh, and then clearly the, the traditional HSE leadership and so forth I think is very important. Um, being a technology leader, certainly in oil and gas, uh, and I think with emissions reduction, that part of it, it could be partnering with companies. So I think in getting to net zero scope one and two, you're gonna to have to figure out the emissions reduction technology side of that. If you're not doing it on your own, which I'm not sure it should be done on their own, I think it's about partnering with uh, other companies. And then of course, last but certainly not least, attract retaining, uh, retaining globally diverse talent base, both for management teams, boards, and within the employee base. I, I think on the diversity front, I just make this point, almost every shale EMP had the exact same strategy last decade. They all had the well IRR model. And I would just ask, where was the pushback? Where was the pushback from either boards or their fellow managers or even people in the field to say, hey, we're promising these high levels of return, yet we keep taking on debt and we're actually not even profitable. There's some major disconnect that happened um, whether that's a diversity issue, whether it's a groupthink issue, I'm not sure 100% what the reason was, but you do need some people with at least different perspectives to have quite a bit of debate, especially when things clearly are not going right. So let me talk about what I don't include in my energy transition framework. First and foremost, I do not think you want the Western oil and gas industry to divest from the oil and gas industry. It, it, it actually makes no sense. Why would anyone want, and again, I'm gonna apologize, this is an American's perspective. Why would you want Middle East and Russian producers to be dominating the oil and gas industry into the future? They're gonna be part of the mix. Some of those countries and companies are very well run and they're gonna be responsible, but some are not. And whether they are or not, I would think any country is going to want to have um, a strong domestic oil and gas sector if it can have one. And certainly in the U.S. and in Canada, there is massive resource. These can be good, well-run, ESG-friendly co companies. And I think it's incumbent upon not just the health of Americans or Canadians, but really the billions of people in the rest of the world. Um, you start cutting off our sector, how does that help the billions of people that don't have anything to have them then dependent on some of those Middle East and, and Russian producers doesn't make sense. We want a strong and healthy, especially North American, I'll say Western oil and gas industry and divestiture should not be part of that. I actually don't believe in specific production growth targets. That was not included in my uh, transition resilience framework. There is some greater uncertainty on what oil and gas 
demand trends will ultimately be. And I think companies have to be nimble to that. The overwhelming goal is to be profitable. Full stop. That is the goal. Super strong balance sheet. It's great to not shrink. I will acknowledge that. It's great to not shrink. But I'm not crazy about explicit production growth targets. The last thing that's not included in here is some specific new energies, CapEx. Uh, Again, I don't get why a sector that struggled for profitability in the business it knows, (laughs) the oil and gas business, why you'd want them doing a whole bunch of stuff that they presumably don't know as much about. Might be some logical extensions for some companies, but as a mandate, no way. So what, what, like, what are we trying to get out of this? If you're the oil and gas sector, what is the goal? First and foremost, it has to be to regain investor relevance. With the oil and gas sector for most of my 30-year career was somewhere between 6 and 15% of the S&P 500. By the middle of 2020, it had collapsed to about 2% of the S&P. No one cares, right? And even today with the huge rally we've had, uh, maybe we've now shot just above 3%. This is still an irrelevant weighting on the part of investors. That, that frankly, you know, a, as a board member, your greatest fear is actually irrelevance. Um, you want to be a relevant portion of the S&P. This should be the number one goal. Um, we know we're in for a period of, I think, extreme commodity price volatility. And, I th- and, and I'd always say, how as a company can you ensure you're not only resilient to it, but you can take advantage of that volatility. That typically means counter-cyclical investing. That's a great phrase to blurt out. But if, you don't, if you're not inherently profitable and you don't have a super strong fortress balance sheet, you're not going to be able to take advantage of the downturns that inevitably will happen. I, I, I spoke about this a moment ago. There is a need to be nimble to whatever demand trends materialize. I don't think the sector can just take for granted that oil and gas demand will only and always be up and to the right. I, I do think both commodities, especially natural gas, are going to grow for quite a bit of time here. But again, I think there is a need to be humble and respectful for whatever demand may turn out to be. Clearly, we need to meet the world's energy needs with as small of a carbon and environmental footprint as possible. And th- this is a trickier one. Um, but the sector is trying to regain a societal license to operate. And whether it's been unfairly tarnished by some in the climate and ESG crowd, we could debate that. Whether the industry has sort of told its story, as some will say, well enough, you can debate a little bit of that. It's clearly an, a more insular type sector. But it, it is not a good thing for the youth of the world to think the oil and gas sector is evil. So just as a simple goal, can we at least get some young people to no longer think this sector, which has contributed massively to living longer lives, to all of our well-being and, and the, the great Western lives we all live, to better environmental outcomes? Can you at least convince some people that, that that's not an evil uh, you know, thing you're going after there? It's, it's good. So what are some of the substantive ESG issues that I think need addressing? Break even at the trough of the cycle. This idea that when oil goes down, you're going to lose billions of dollars, not okay. I would actually argue best-in-class best companies, 8% return on capital, something like that, mid-single-digit, mid-to-upper single-digit returns at the trough of the cycle. We saw that, for example, with ExxonMobil in 1998, um, and you've seen it with some other companies over time. At the trough, can you at least break even? 
uh, and ideally uh, generate an 8% return. Um, substantively, this sector is trying to generate supply growth that broadly matches or perhaps slightly exceeds ultimate uh, oil and natural gas demand. Can you do that? And I think the last substantive ESG target for these companies is, again, to meet that net zero scope one and two and with zero methane, which I've already spent some time talking about. What about the virtue signaling side of ESG? I, I would call this more in the camp of what these companies have to navigate, um, you know, as opposed to uh, initially being a goal. First and foremost, I don't think the sector can take for granted ongoing capital market access. I, I, I do suspect if we get the return on capital super cycle, I'm expecting corporate capital market access will be there. But I think Europe, as an example, I, I don't think anyone can take as a given that European markets are going to be open. Now, maybe that doesn't matter for U.S. and Canadian oil. But, uh, you know, even in the U.S., um, I think this gets tougher even with the upcycle we're having. Again, Fortress balance sheet is part of the answer there. Um, th th there are these ongoing divestment initiatives. What that means for ultimate trading multiples, terminal values, all these kind of things, I think remains to be seen. Again, with the sector doing a bit better, maybe this risk also will be diminished. I think it's going to be hard for broad-based um, investment funds to ignore the oil and gas sector, especially if it can get back to tripping some of the uh, more notable percent of S&P type metrics. The more relevant you are, the harder it is to have <clears throat> divestment. I think if you're irrelevant, then divestment's um, more possible. I think the last thing is we know, especially in the U.S., but around the world, Political regimes are going to come and go. Here we're going to have Republicans and Democrats and go back and forth. If you are a sustainable company, it really is about doing the right things over the, the long term. It isn't hoping that the current government you don't like goes away and that you can kind of ignore this stuff if, uh, let's just call it a more friendly government comes in. That is, that's not the goal. It is absolutely not the goal. A substantive ESG, I think, will be good for profitability. So let me uh, spend a second here on Fortress balance sheet. And what I've got here is, um, you know, balance sheet metrics for the top 20 companies in the S&P, excluding energy and financials. And you, those are the green bars. And you can see more cash than debt. Um, so it's a, if it's OK for some of these leading companies, which absolutely is the target uh, the target types of companies we want to compare to he with here. We want energy to get back into a leadership sector. Well, then you can have more cash than debt. The, the, the balance sheets actually aren't terrible for the biggest energy companies as classically defined, a 27% net debt to cap. I think any of you who are fellow longtime analysts would say anything in that 20 to 30% debt to cap range has been sort of acceptable. I'm, I'm not sure it's acceptable going forward. I'm not sure it's acceptable in an energy transition area era and when we see leading companies currently having their own fortress balance sheets, by the way, in sectors that don't face the type of price volatility uh, that this sector. So let me turn to this issue of scope three emissions. And certainly within the oil sector, this may be true elsewhere. It's probably the scope that is most controversial. I think scope one and two CO2 emissions, which are essentially the direct outcome of your operations and, and business, I think people will get. Scope three is the downstream version of it, meaning the use of your product, which for an oil and gas company is going to be overwhelmingly when people drive their cars or fly planes, 
that combustion of gasoline and jet fuel creates scope three emissions. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of polluter pays mindset or mantra from the uh, from the greenhouse gas protocol will say companies are responsible for that. This is true for all sectors, but it's certainly particularly relevant for the oil and gas space. And so my, my personal view is the current accounting, the current attribution, this whole notion of scope three, I just think is, is just wrong and needs revamping. I mean, first and foremost, I don't think CO2 is like the kind of problems other products have that are worth dealing with. It's a negative externality. I don't even call it pollution. So as an example, um, let's say you create an autonomous driving technology that results in accidents or something worse. That clearly would be the type of consumer or business product where either the company needs to fix it, and if they don't, you need regulation. If you're a food or drug company and you have some product that sickens people or worse, again, good example, I think, of something that's not okay, where regulation or companies dealing with this, trade group, somebody needs to fix that. I, I don't think that applies to energy supply. Energy supply is overwhelmingly critical to all of humanity. Energy is life. Um, we live longer. We love our lifestyles. You have cleaner air and other better environmental outcomes when you use energy. It does come with the negative externality of too much CO2, and there's no part of any of this where I'm not arguing against, we need to deal with that, okay? But energy supply is a good thing, and it's negative externality is what we have to deal with. Um, if you look at scope three accounting today, I'm going to show an example in the oil sector. It's double, triple, quadrupled, and whatever counts for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten x overcounted, uh, depending on how uh, businesses are set up. There's, there's a real sort of accounting and attribution problem with scope three today, um, and, and with the bad math, with the sort of pollution, CO two's pollution mindset, you're getting bad public policy bad ESG choices as a result of it. We need energy companies to provide energy supply. We need to deal with our CO2. We want to motivate companies like Tesla to create great electric vehicles that perhaps someday displace the internal combustion engine and equivalent effects in other sectors. But with the CO2 as pollution mindset, and therefore putting all the onus on the oil and gas sector, which is frankly simply absurd, um, you're getting some bad outcomes. We need more oil and gas supply from oil and gas companies. We need other industries and other sectors to create the technologies that ultimately do lessen our CO2 impact. And there may be some marriage amongst that. But again, the mindset today, I think, is, is not accurate. So here's the oil industry example. Uh, so some of you will be familiar, some won't. In the oil and gas business, you first produce crude oil from a wellhead, you deliver it, it's gathered, uh, goes to a processing facility. Uh, it is then shipped via pipeline to a refinery. In the refinery, it's broken down into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and so forth. Then might go to a storage tank or to a wholesaler who then ultimately gets it to an end use area like a gas station where you fill it up with your car or an airport or what have you. 
Certainly in the U.S. and Canada, it's true for actually large parts of the world. There are many different companies involved in all these different steps. But that scope three emission is essentially the same for all of them because the bulk of your CO2 is going to come from the combustion in your internal combustion engine car or air, airplane or what have you. And so where is the logic in counting scope three in this example, at least seven times, maybe if you take away where your title for crude oil doesn't change, it's triple overcounted, but there's kind of an, an, an idiocy to the math around scope three. And with, with bad math, you're getting bad public policy, bad ESG initiatives, all of which with, at the barest of minimums needs reform. Um, here, I'm gonna give a couple examples of scope three. So how is it the fault of the oil and gas industry that Amazon has created this phenomenal service, Amazon Prime, that with a click of a button can get you your product usually uh, about a day later, sometimes same day, and like if it's not going well, it's two or three days, right? All those Amazon delivery trucks endlessly circling our neighborhood is scope three emissions. And there is no chance any oil company has anything to do with that. I actually love Amazon Prime. I hope it continues. Um, I'm not looking for that to be eliminated because we're eliminating scope three. But again, when you think about attribution of scope three, why should an oil company be tagged for that delivery or any delivery truck? Another example, one of my favorites for those of you that know me, the SUVification of the world's ICE vehicle fleet. This is the number one reason fuel economy targets are missed by 80 to 90%. The reason I actually believe oil demand will grow through at least 2030 is because we've shifted our internal combustion fleet from cars to SUVs and light trucks, and that de facto causes all these cafe standards, not just in the US, but in other parts of the world, to be missed. Again, what does an oil company have anything to do with the production of that or any other SUV and what can they do about it? So, in conclusion, what are we actually solving for here? We are trying to end energy poverty. We have 3 billion people, something like that, who use less energy than the typical American uses in their refrigerator, which is insane. You have maybe upwards of 1 billion people who currently are reliant on burning biomass. That is not good. All of those people would absolutely take any form of energy. No one who doesn't have a vehicle says, you know what, I don't want that gasoline car. I'm going to wait for Tesla to come to my country, to my impoverished rural neighborhood. No, no one says that. Do they say, you know what, not a fan of coal. It's a little too CO2 intensive. I'm good with burning by. No, no one says that. Okay. We need energy supply for everybody. We need it with as small an environmental and climate footprint as possible. But the primary goal is energy for all. It is affordable, available, secure energy for every person on earth. That is the primary goal. And I think when you solve for that, then you have a chance to address these climate concerns. My basic tagline at this point is, we will never solve climate without first or simultaneously ending energy poverty. Energy is primary. 
climate is a negative externality. Too much CO2 is a negative externality that comes with that. And you have to get that order right, or you're going to get a whole bunch of bad policies, bad ESG initiatives, and this energy crisis environment that we increasingly find ourselves in. I'm going to end this video like I end the posts on a personal note, especially for those of you that know me. I think it's probably pretty obvious that writing and Excel modeling comes much more naturally to me than recording, producing, editing these videos. I will say this, though. I think all of us consume information in different ways. For some people, it is the written product that resonates. For others, it's live discussion. And for others still, it is video. And I think you have to learn to make friends with all these technologies. I've actually enjoyed embracing the social media aspect, which would be the antithesis of what it was like to work at Goldman Sachs, where you only spoke to the highest of the high-end clients, corporates, uh, and colleagues, and so forth. Um, it, it is fun, actually, again, having a somewhat more public platform and profile. And I do promise you, while it's probably going to take me a long time to really ramp up on this video thing, I'm going to keep trying. Um, I hope future videos will be a little shorter than this one. Uh, but we're going to keep engaging on the content. Thank you.